have your Bibles, if you will, uh, join me in turning to Matthew chapter 28. I know in our uh, order of worship, uh, you notice that uh, it's the designated time for our intercession. We're going to hold on to that, okay? Uh, and we're going to do that at the close of our, our message today. If you're taking notes, uh, I'll give you an opportunity for those of you who like to take notes maybe and are trying to write down an outline and follow an outline, I will give you the points of the message today and then you can follow along. Uh, title of the message is Jesus After Death, What Does It Mean? Jesus after death, what does it mean? We know that all the way through Matthew, we have been hearing Matthew's argument that this is King Jesus, the Messiah King. So we're going to look today at King Jesus' undeniable death, His irrefutable resurrection, His all-encompassing authority, His closing command and His purposeful promise. Most of you will find that strange of me because there is some degree of alliteration there. His undeniable death, His irrefutable resurrection, all-encompassing authority, closing command, and purposeful promise. On Saturday, uh, January the 5th, 2008, uh, I was called to go to the hospital. I knew the nature of the call. It was a close friend of mine, uh, and he was in his last hours. He was about to pass away. The next hours were gruelingly painful for him. I watched him... And I watched the eyes of his mom and daddy. All three were crying out for help. They all wanted to turn back the clock two years and write a different script. But they couldn't. And in those moments, they just wanted his suffering to end. And he wanted his suffering to end. His mother begged the doctors to please give him something to relieve him of his pain. The doctors did all that they could do, short of giving him a lethal dose of pain medication, and that they could not do. And finally, he gasped his last breath, and his pain ended with his life. I thought of this experience as I sought to imagine, at least in part, how it must have been for Jesus and those close to Him who were watching His suffering. He never lost consciousness. He was never sedated, but rather experienced every torturous moment 
conscious and aware of his physical suffering, which at least to some degree could be witnessed by those who gathered. And he was conscious of the fury of God's wrath that was being poured out on him, which was separate in ways from his physical anguish, though not entirely. And that suffering could not be seen. And it could not be witnessed. In fact, it couldn't even be imagined. But knowing that the clock could not be turned back, in a different script written, his own mother and others close to him waited. I'm sure torn between wanting him to live and longing for his last breath that his suffering would end. And it did. We closed last week with looking at verse 50 of chapter 27. Let's look at it again. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up His Spirit. And He was gone. I wonder how many of you have had someone very close to you to pass away. Someone who you just could not imagine going on without. Someone, someone with whom you identified so closely. Maybe you were with them when they died. Or maybe you received the news just minutes after the fact. And the hard blow of the reality, they're gone. They're gone. That hard blow governed that moment and the moments to follow. I wonder how you felt. Certainly there was a range of emotions that flooded over you. There may have been a sense of just shock, disbelief even, fear, anguish, heaviness, and certainly brokenheartedness. And maybe, in some cases, some relief. I'm certain in those moments at the foot of the cross, there was some emotion that was expressed. Feelings deeply felt. Thoughts racing through the minds of those who gathered that loved Him. And certainly, the word began to spread. And those who had fled were receiving it minutes and hours later, like many of us have. And they felt those things. And maybe even other things, like guilt because they were not there to support Him and to witness it. Jesus was gone. But not only was He gone, in their minds, His followers, their hopes, their dreams, and in their mind, their future was gone. He said it would happen, and it did. But in their minds, they're asking these questions. What do we do? How do we go on? Where will we go? What happens at the death of a king? We just witnessed a few months ago all the things that happened when a long-reigning queen passed away. There was a period of mourning followed by a great celebration and then an official naming of her successor. 
Well, on that day, the king of the Jews, as had been stated and publicized, was dead. What was going to happen? Who was going to replace him? And what about his kingdom that was being established? Well, Matthew intends to tell us. Look there in chapter 27, and beginning in verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and they said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive that after three days I will rise. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He is risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Well, first we're told that the rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, a secret follower of Jesus and a council member who had not consented to the decision that was made regarding Jesus, came forward to claim his body. Luke tells us that Joseph purchased a linen shroud. John tells us that Nicodemus also came and brought the necessary spices to embalm or prepare the body. And we hear that Jesus was laid in Joseph's own tomb. I was thinking about that. Isn't it interesting that in Jesus telling his would-be followers the cost of being his disciple, he said, foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. And now, upon His death, one of His disciples provides a place to lay the body of Jesus. The details of Jesus' burial and tomb were explicit. Matthew is intent on us understanding some things. Matthew is building his case to make sure that no one will be able to deny the death of Jesus. John tells us that the Romans ensured that he was dead. In fact, when they came, they didn't even break his legs because they saw that he was dead, that they just stuck a spear in his side and the water and the blood flowed. Joseph and Nicodemus were not about to bury a live man. No one would. They came and they placed him in a tomb. One that had been cut out in the rock and sealed with a stone. Even the insecurities of the Pharisees led to placing a temple guard. In other words, they were assigned the task of watching over the tomb of Jesus. These men were entrusted with this responsibility. 
Why? Well, Jesus' prophetic words seem to be more of a threat to them after his death than before. They had heard his declaration of his own resurrection, but they had not heeded his call to faith and repentance. You ever thought about that? But as we go on and we look at his resurrection, the Pharisees were not alone in their disbelief. Let's look, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen. As he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb, and with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up, and they took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. As we said, the Pharisees were not alone in their disbelief. Their disbelief was driven by hatred and by a threat. The followers of Jesus didn't believe either. You know why? They didn't have a category in their mind for a resurrected king. They had no frame of reference for that, to even begin to consider it. They had witnessed resurrections. In fact, it was just a few days before that they had witnessed Jesus call Lazarus from the grave. But here's the difference. Now, the one who had such power was gone. He had miraculously multiplied food. He had cast out legions of demons. He had calmed storms. And yes, he had even raised the dead. But he had also been arrested. And he had been crucified. And he had died. And he was buried in a tomb just like all the other people that they had known. And there is nothing in them yet that can help them see past that tomb. I was thinking about it this week. You know, that's still true of most people today. They cannot see past their immediate circumstances. That's more true of us than we even want to admit. We recall all that Scripture tells us about the power of Jesus, and yet we often find ourselves paralyzed by our present circumstances. 
Matthew is intent upon helping all of those, all of us who would follow, to look beyond the tomb, to look beyond whatever it is that is burdening us. Why? Because there is this one who is all-powerful. These women make their way to the tomb. Mark's Gospel tells us that they purchase more spices to complete the unfinished task of preparing His body. This is going to require a lot of them. Can you imagine going back to a dead body that was three days dead, already decomposing, swollen, stinking? But they were committed to that task. Matthew just simply states that they were coming to see the tomb. Did they even know that a guard had been placed to keep them out of the tomb? Did they come hoping that they would be able to persuade the guard to let them finish this task? We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. What it does say is that when they arrived, the guard lay like dead men. And an angel was sitting on the stone that had once sealed the tomb. Notice the continued witness that God provides for His people. Just astounded by it. He didn't leave them alone to find an empty tomb. You know, He could have. Jesus could have been raised. The earthquake could have taken place. The guard could have fled because of all that they saw. And then they could have just arrived at some point in time and an open tomb would have been there and nobody. That wasn't going to work here. No. He didn't leave them alone to deal with more heartache and crisis. He didn't leave them to deal with unanswered questions and still a sense of no hope. God sent an angel to bear witness to them of His work. But isn't that what God has done all along the way? Think about it. He sent an angel to Mary to tell her of what was to come. He sent an angel to Joseph to explain to him what was going to take place, telling him, no, marry this one that you are betrothed to. And then name this son Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. He sends an angel to tell of a full wound. And now he sends an angel to point to a tomb that was empty. Both announcements were necessary in delivering life. But their encounter did not end with the announcement by the angel. While they're en route to tell the disciples this message that Jesus has been raised, that He is no longer in the tomb, that He is alive just as He said that He would be, who shows up? Jesus. He comes and He greets them and He says, don't be afraid. And what do they do? Well, what would we do? They fell at His feet and they worshipped Him. That's what they did. That was their response. They were not in awe. They fell and worshipped Him. It's incredible to think about. And then He tells them 
You go on and do what you've been commanded to do. Go to Galilee and I will meet you there. But notice that he does something else. We read it. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid and go tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Did you get it? Go tell my brothers. I don't think he's limiting this to the 11 disciples. There's nothing in Scripture that would point to that. Remember what Jesus had said earlier, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And then we saw just a few weeks ago when we were looking at Matthew chapter 25, He says, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Who's he talking about? He's talking about those who were followers of Him. Those who believe. Those who trust in Him. This makes them His brother. Why? God's acceptance of Christ's sacrifice. His atoning work now has established this familiar relationship with God as their Father, Jesus as their brother, And He calls them my brothers. This week I couldn't help get away from, just couldn't get away from this thought. He calls them His brothers. I thought of Joseph. We read through that litany just a moment ago in our confession of those who denied, those who fled, those who ran. The only disciple that we know of the 11 who were left alive, the only disciple that we know that was at the cross was John. All the others had fled and gone. Peter wasn't there. Thomas wasn't there. Matthias wasn't there. None of them were there. They were gone. And yet he reaches out and he calls them and tells these two women, go tell my brothers to come to Galilee. What is he saying? Well, he's saying that my atoning work and God's acceptance of my sacrifice on your behalf has made you my brothers. Come, I have your well-being in mind. When Joseph recognized his brothers, what does he not do? He doesn't condemn. He doesn't judge. He didn't try to retaliate. He didn't say, oh, I've got them where I want them and and I'll fix them for what they've done. Oh no, they had sold him into slavery. He had been separated and apart from his father. Jesus had been separated and apart from his father to make them his brothers. They come to Him. Why? Because He cares for them. And He loves them. Jesus is calling His brothers to come. Began this morning in Isaiah 55. With what? With a call to come. We sang, only trust Him. With a call to come. Why? because of the great love that God has for us and has demonstrated through the Lord Jesus Christ and His atoning work that made it possible for us to be 
his brothers. I want you to consider the significance of these next verses. Look in verse 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. This is after they come to, mind you. Uh, After they have 